Today, I want to preach to a message entitled, The Spirit-Filled Life. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and flip to John 14, and then keep a finger over in John 16, and then we'll also be referencing some other scriptures in the New Testament, uh, but John 14, John 16. Right now, our government and automakers are trying their darndest to push the green agenda, transitioning drivers from gas-powered cars and trucks to electric vehicles. Now, so far, the results this year have ranged from lackluster to downright embarrassing. And before you rush out and buy your new Tesla, you need to hear this. In August of this year, Ford CEO Jim Farley tried to complete a trip from Silicon Valley, California to Las Vegas, Nevada in an electric F-150 Lightning. That's a journey of 538 miles. During his drive, listen to this, Farley spent over 40 minutes at a charging station only to get a 40% charge on his battery. That was enough juice to get him another 120 miles down the road before he had to call a tow truck. Farley called the experience a, quote, reality check, and he also reported that Ford, in 2022, for every electric vehicle they sold, sold them at a $66,000 loss. And guess who's footing the bill to make up the difference? You and me. Then there was the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm. She embarked on a four-day road trip this summer from Charlotte, North Carolina, to Memphis, Tennessee, a distance of 619 miles. There's the headline from NPR. Electric cars have a road trip problem, even for the Secretary of Energy. Here's what happened. This PR stunt was meant to highlight the billions of dollars the White House is pouring into electric car infrastructure, but it was a disaster. At a charging station in Grovestone, Georgia, one of the plug-ins was broken and three were occupied when the Secretary's entourage arrived. So an Energy Department staffer tried to park a gas vehicle by one of those working chargers to reserve a spot for the approaching secretary. That did not go over well. A regular gas-powered car blocking the only free spot for a charger? In fact, a family that was boxed out on a sweltering day with a baby in the vehicle was so upset they decided to get the authorities involved and they called the police on the Secretary of Energy. You can't write this stuff. Here's the point. Fancy EVs won't get you from A to B unless they are regularly charged from a power source. Doesn't matter how many bells and whistles, how great the technology is on the inside, how much scientific research and technological ingenuity has been poured into it, it has to have a power source. And likewise, the Christian life sputters along unless we are daily filled by the Holy Spirit. We have to be plugged in to a power source. And that power source is the Spirit of God who dwells within each born-again, blood-bought child of God. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, wrote it this way. He said, quote, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. Remove the indwelling power of the paraclete, and we are ships without wind. Chariots without steeds, branches without sap, and coals without fire. So when it comes to the Holy Spirit, listen to me, you're either plugged in or you're just plodding along. Now the Bible has many names for the Holy Spirit, the Helper, 
the comforter, the teacher, the advocate, and of course the one we know, the paraclete. Now in today's message, we're going to do a deep dive into the spirit-filled life and we're going to try and unpack these titles and I want to show you five essential ministries for the spirit-filled life. Five ministries that the Holy Spirit does for you and me, believers and children of God, that we have to have Him in our life. Number one is this, the Spirit indwells believers. The Spirit indwells believers. I'm in John 14, starting in verse 16. The Bible says, this is Jesus talking, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He, watch this, dwells with you and will be in you. Now the title that the Jesus gave to the Holy Spirit is actually the Greek word paraclete. It's used five times in the New Testament. Now depending on the translation of your Bible, the text may render that name as helper, comforter, advocate, but literally, that word paraclete, it means this. One who comes alongside. Now, here's the origin of that word. It comes from the battlefield. You see, when Greek soldiers went into a battle, they were assigned a partner. And when the enemy attacked, the Greek soldiers could stand back to back, covering each other's blind side. And so a soldier's battle companion was called their paraclete or one who fought alongside them, one who came alongside of them. And in the same way, our Lord has not sent us into the fray of spiritual conflict to fight alone. The Holy Spirit is our paraclete. He's our ever-present foxhole buddy who picks us up when we fall and who has our back. Amen? But the ministry of the Holy Spirit goes even deeper than that. Jesus said the Spirit would take up abode in you. That's just as mystifying as it is astounding. Oh friend, think about that. That the third person of the Trinity would become your roommate. My roommate. That God would call my heart His home. Friend, that's what makes the Christian life personal. That's what makes the Christian life precious. That's what makes the Christian life powerful. Because God is in me working in this old, old uh, cold body of flesh. God moving in a sinner to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Think about this, friend. Because the Holy Spirit indwells you, you're never alone. God goes with you. God is not just some abstract concept. He's not just some distant deity up in the sky. He's not just an old fusty man with a long beard sitting on a throne. No, God is as near as your next thought. He's as close as your next breath. He lives in you. He indwells you. He empowers you. He walks with me, oh friend, and He talks with me. He guides and He guards. He convicts and He comforts. Oh, and when the Holy Spirit moves, He fills and praise God, He thrills when He works in somebody's life. He helps me every step of the way because God knows I can't take a step 
unless He's holding my hand. You see, friend, God knew my fallen frame. God knew that I would fail. God knew that I would have difficulty in my prayer life. God knew that Satan would never take a day off and he'd always be tempting. He'd always be attacking. He'd always be lying. God knew that if given the choice, I'd always choose sin over the Savior. And so, in His divine providence, He set ahead a helper, a comforter, a paraclete who'll help me in my weakness, in my infirmity, in my failure, and help me live the Christian life because I need God every single day. Hey, this isn't an admission of declaration of independence. I'm talking about a declaration of dependence. I need the Holy Spirit every day to help me to live this impossible Christian life. And praise God, I've got Him and He's got me. Years ago, Pastor Robert Munger, he wrote a classic little book called My Heart, Christ's Home. In it, he wrote about the indwelling ministry of the Spirit and how this changed his life. Look at what he said. Without question, one of the most remarkable Christian doctrines is that Jesus Christ, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, will actually enter a heart, settle down, and be at home there. Oh, how precious that is. Jesus came into the darkness of my heart and He turned on the light. He built a fire in the cold heart and banished the chill. He started music where there had been stillness and He filled the emptiness with His own loving, wonderful fellowship. Can somebody say praise God for the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit today? Friend, the Spirit-filled life is one in which we throw out the welcome mat for the third person of the Trinity and say, come on in. You're not just resident, you're president. And find your way into the secret corners and the dark places. And clean out my life that I might feel the joy of your presence every day. Number one, we see that the Spirit indwells believers. But i got to hasten on. Number two, I want to talk to you also about the Spirit instructs believers. He indwells he instructs. Drop down to verse 26, John 14. Notice this. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now go over to chapter 16. Flip a page. Verse 13. Here's a follow-up verse with that. And when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit is the one who shines light on the pages of God's Word so that we can find wisdom and direction in a dark and confusing world. Remember, friend, it was the Holy Spirit who inspired the 40 authors of the Bible to record their experiences and write down their oracles and their sermons and their proverbs and their poems and psalms. And the Holy Spirit carefully oversaw the whole process of getting Scripture down on page. He utilized the individual personalities of shepherds and kings and poets and fishermen and prophets and laymen 
so that when they penned the Word of God, they penned the words that God wanted you and I to read today and to be blessed of. But it doesn't just stop there with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is also involved in a day-by-day ministry of what we call illumination. Jesus just talked about that. Illumination is when He instructs and brings enlightenment and proper discernment to the Word of God. You see, think back to who you were and how you were before you were saved. The Bible was a closed book to you. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 that the natural man receives not the things of God. You can hear a spirit-filled preacher as a lost person and be convicted and grit your teeth and hate the Word of God and not receive the Word of God. You can be a lost man, intellectual and, and brilliant, but yet without the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit to help you to see, it might as well be gibberish on a page. But upon your salvation, here's what the Bible teaches, you received an ever-present teacher whose job it is, friend, to lead you into the truth. I could not do what I'm doing to, to help you right now through the preaching of the Word of God unless I had the Holy Spirit of God to speak to me into my study, to uh, make the scales fall off my eyes and help me to see the truth contained therein that I might apply it to life and help you to walk a spirit-filled life. You see, friend, the Bible is the textbook the Spirit is the teacher, and the test is life. And I'm thankful that I've got a paraclete along the way who will help me to learn the lessons that God would have me to learn in Scripture and in wisdom and daily life because I've had to do a retest a time or two, <laughs> and the retest ain't too fun. So Holy Spirit, lead me. Holy Spirit, teach me. I'm teachable. I'm open. My heart and my mind is yours. Lord, lay upon me the wisdom of Scripture that I might live it out in flesh and blood. I love what David Jeremiah said. He said, when the Spirit of God comes to live within you, He opens the Word of God so that you can understand it. He highlights verses that once seemed cryptic and unknowable. He whispers meanings and insight to your mind. Sometimes the illumination of the Spirit is subtle like the soft glow of a nightlight. Other times His insights come like thunderbolts. And friend, I've been there before where I have stared all week at a verse and said, Lord, I don't see it. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I'm deaf. I'm dumb. I'm blind. I can't get anything out of a piece of flint. Lord, I need you. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit will say, okay, you've struggled enough. You've wrestled enough with the text. You've learned the lesson that sometimes spiritual things don't come easy. And the Holy Spirit will turn on the light. And all of a sudden, I'll see, that's the message God wants me to preach on Sunday. Praise God. And there have been many times I've stood up in my study and said, hallelujah. Praise God. He threw on the light. I've got help on Sunday morning. I know where I'm going with this text. I've got something to say to my people. And now I'm excited. Oh, can't wait for Sunday to get here. Because the Holy Spirit's given me sight. He's given me emphasis. He's given me unction in my function. So that I might be able to preach the Word. And the Word go out and transform lives. Friend, there's nothing like it. 
There's nothing like it. This explains to me something that I know that you have encountered many times in your Christian life. You've sat there with open Bible, tears from your eyes, and confusion in your mind. You've read a passage a hundred times. And you think, you know, I I think I know this verse. I I learned this as a kid, and I read it a hundred times. But then, on the hundred and first time, you read it. And all of a sudden, you stumble across something new that you never saw the hundred times previous. But on the hundred and first time, God's Spirit just flips on the spotlight and says, here's something that you've never seen before. Now, did you get smarter? Not really. What was it? It was the Holy Spirit who opened up your eyes and your mind and perhaps through the circumstances of life, He worked to soften your heart so that now you're able to receive the truth whereas before, your heart was hard and your mind was closed and you weren't ready for the Word of God. But now he's done it. That's what makes studying the Bible so exciting. That's what makes preaching so much fun. If you can't tell, I have a good time up here. (laughs) Hey, there's no sin in that, right? There's joy in the house of the Lord. And your preacher ought to be excited. He ought to be spirit-filled. He ought to be charged up and prayed up and ready to go chase the devil with a water gun. Hey, your preacher ought to be excited if he's not Maybe something's going wrong in his prayer life or his study life because I'm telling you every time I get in the Word of God, there's something there for me. There's something that excites me. There's something that draws me back to Jesus. There's something that helps me to go deeper with the Lord and higher in worship and longer in prayer. And can I just say this? I love studying the Bible. I love preaching the Word of God. I love that I get to be a pastor because I've got the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, and He makes life so exciting. He makes life so vibrant. He makes preaching so much fun. And I pray that you enjoy it as much as I do. But I was listening to Bill Bright one time. Now, Bill Bright, he was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he once told a story about an atheist friend that he was witnessing to. And the man said to Mr. Bright, he said, Look, I know you're telling me about Jesus. I know you're telling me I need to believe on the Word of God. But I can't make heads or tails out of the Bible. I mean, I read it, and it makes no sense to me. Uh, Your book might as well be written in Egyptian hieroglyphs. Because I can't make anything out of it. Well, some time went by, Dr. Bright said. And then the atheist called him one day, just out of the blue. He said, Dr. Bright, are you sitting down? He said, yes. He said, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. He said, remember how I used to be an atheist? Yes. Remember how I used to doubt the Word of God? Yes. Remember how I resisted the many times you tried to witness to me and tell me about Jesus? Yes. He said, well, I called today to tell you that I got gloriously saved. I'm not an atheist anymore. I'm a believer today. I called to tell you that I'm a Christian today. And when I surrendered to Jesus, he's like, it's like somebody rewrote the Bible in a language that I can understand now. And then he said this. He said, Dr. Bright, I finally saw the Bible not as a book of myths that needed to be debunked, but as a love letter from a heavenly Father. That's the difference the Holy Spirit makes when you study His Word and you got the teacher right there with you. Number two, the, the Spirit instructs believers. The Spirit indwells believers. 
I'm having fun. Are you having fun yet? Number three, the Spirit intercedes for believers. Oh, this is where the Lord kicked the honey bucket over in my study time. Notice this, Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What a precious promise God has given us there. Friend, were it not for the aid of the Holy Spirit, it's highly doubtful that our prayers would get any higher than the ceiling. But Paul explains here that the Spirit works as an intercessor, as a mediator who makes sure our prayers get delivered to the Father no matter what our mental, emotional, or spiritual state might be at the moment that we offer that prayer. You see, when you don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit is your trainer. When you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit is your translator. He intercedes for you and I. You see, the Holy Spirit, He helps you to overcome our flesh, our folly, our faithless attitudes. He'll activate your will and give us the desire to pray. I say it like this. The Holy Spirit will give you the want to. He'll give you the want to be in the Word of God, in the house of God. He'll woo you into a prayer closet. He'll help you to choose prayer and fellowship with God over entertainment or over an idol or over some other distraction in your life. The Holy Spirit aids our minds when we run into a mental roadblock, when we need a friendly reminder of, oh yeah, I told that brother, I told that sister, I would pray for them. And you'd be in the prayer closet and the Holy Spirit reminds you, hey, don't forget so and so. You told them on Wednesday night you'd pray for them. That's how it, the Holy Spirit helps our prayer life. And notice this. I love this part right here. He articulates our emotions when all we can do is get before God and cry and bear our heart to Him and let out groanings that's not appropriate for the public. Not appropriate for anybody else except the audience of one. And that's my God. And the Holy Spirit will help you to pray in your lowest moment. You see, friend, your best prayer probably didn't come on the podium. Your best prayer probably didn't come in a Sunday school class when they tapped your shoulder and asked you to pray. Your best prayer came when you didn't have the words to say. You didn't know what to do except cry before the Lord. Your best prayer came when you said, God, I need an intercessor. God, are you there? My babies are lost. My bills are too high. The doctor says this. Oh, help me, God. That's when He intercedes. You see, because I've learned, listen to me, child of God. It took me a long time to learn this. The Holy Spirit is attracted to weakness. It's like the weaker we are, <laughs> the more He comes in and helps us. Weakness doesn't repulse the Spirit of God. In fact, the opposite of that, pride is what quenches the Spirit of God. That's why I say, tears are a language the Spirit understands. Amen? Max Cicado wrote this. He said, 
the greatest prayer warriors might very well appear to be the weakest. The convicted criminal in jail. The forgotten child in the orphanage. The sickly saint in the nursing home. My mother riddled with dementia would lie in her bed and mumble the name Jesus. Our God heard her. In those moments when you have nothing going for you, you have God's Spirit as your advocate translating our weak, incoherent prayers until they are heard in the tribunal of heaven. Somebody who's been there before, help me praise God for the interceding power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you a little story. A while back, the copier at the church office broke down. I don't know if you've ever looked inside a copier before. Hey, you better have a brain like Elon Musk if you're going to figure out that thing. So I got on the hotline and I called the repair shop, the company where we rent the machine from. I said, look, I said, I don't know how to explain to you what's going on. I said, but this, this copier's jammed up. It won't work. It, it's possessed by the devil. I said, that's all I can say. Meanwhile, it's Thursday afternoon. I said, we got Sunday coming. i got to get these bulletins printed off because if I don't get a bulletin out there, these OCD people will be all over me. Where's my bulletin? i got to fill out my blanks. I said, I don't even know how to describe to you what's going on inside. All I know is that when I hit print, it's dead. They said, Mr. McCarson, you just hang on. We're sending Batman out there. No. They said, we're sending our technician. He'll be there at such and such time. So he showed up. That technician, he come in there, he tore that thing apart, he looked inside of it. He said, yep, I know exactly what's going on with this. I said, hallelujah, praise God. I watched him, he got out his phone. He called the, the warehouse so-and-so. He said, we got a code 17 here. <laughs> and he started naming off parts. The, the, the light defector fusion reactor inside is, uh, is gone haywire and I need a part. Here's the part number 57892. Do we have it in the warehouse? Yes, we've got that in the warehouse. Okay, I'm... He got off the phone. He said, I'm going to the warehouse. Get the part. I'll be back in a jiff. And in an hour, he had that thing up and running. Here's the point. I had a problem. And my problem was so over my head, I didn't even know how to describe it. I needed a mediator. I needed somebody to step in with the knowledge of my situation and explain the problem to a higher source so that my requests could get to where it needed to go so that the problem could be resolved in my life. Oh God, help me to preach this. I'm telling you, that's exactly how the Holy Spirit works. As an interceder in our life, sometimes I sit before God and I say, God, this problem is way above me. I can't change hearts. I can't move this mountain. I can't open this door. God, I'm helpless before you. I don't even know how to describe to you the depths of my pain and my affliction and my emotional state right now so God I offer you my tears and if you can make any sense out of this messed up tangled up prayer God that's all I have to offer you and the Bible says the Holy Spirit swoops in and says I got this brother I know exactly how to translate this oh praise God I know exactly how to take this to the son and the son he's a sympathizing savior he'll take it right to the father I've got this brother Derek just let it go let the Holy Spirit intercede I'll take it to the destination where it needs to go 
That's what God will do for you. Amen. Number three, the Spirit intercedes for believers. Number four, the Spirit initiates change in believers. The Spirit initiates change. I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Don't worry about flipping to it. It's coming up on the screen. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, what's this, who is the Spirit. The moment you were saved, all your problems magically went away, didn't they? No. The moment you were saved, instantly a million dollars deposited in your bank account. No. The moment you were saved, puppy dogs and rainbows and roses, and your favorite team always won, no. In fact, if you're a Carolina Panther fan today, you're probably going to lose. Just say. I call them like a scene, brother. Here's the point. The moment you were saved, one conflict ended and another conflict began. That's when the real battle started in your life. You thought you had problems. Then you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now all of a sudden, the devil's got a set of crosshairs on you. As you switch teams, the devil's mad. He's lost another one. But the same time you come to believe in Christ, another fight is initiated. And it's the fight that takes place every day in the Christian life between the Spirit and the flesh. Somebody who's lived it say Amen. And all of a sudden, now as a child of God with the Spirit of God within you, you find a new set of challenges that you never had before. Why? Because you're a walking civil war. Because you got two dogs fighting within you between the Spirit and the flesh, and the dog that you feed the most is the dog that's going to win that fight. And even though you're saved, even though you're born again, even though you're heaven bound, you still got that old fallen flesh that wants to drag you down every day. You don't believe me, you drive across town at 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon and you're going to get in the flesh real quick. <laughs> hey, men, hot-blooded men, attractive woman walks right beside you. Lust. That's the flesh. Walking through the house late at night, your child has been up crying and as you go through the living room, you step on a Lego block. Hey, you'll go back in the flesh real quick because you're going to say some words you hadn't said in a long time, hopefully. Hey, I'm just telling my testimony, just being real with you today. Amen? But the whole rest of your Christian life is now under what we call the process of sanctification. What is that? That's the gradual, lifelong transformation of your character from the old, sinful self to Christ-like character. It's every day growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's putting off the old that you may walk in the new. And the one who initiates salvation is also the one who helps in sanctification. It's the Holy Spirit. The one who births faith in your heart and then the one who helps you to live that faith every day. Now in the passage that we just read, Paul used an Old Testament example. 
Notice we are all like unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. What is he talking about there? Well, you've got to go back in your Old Testament. Exodus 34. Moses goes on Mount Sinai a second time, by the way, to get a new set of Ten Commandments. See, he got fighting mad the first time he got the Ten Commandments and came down and found that they had made a golden calf idol and he threw them down in anger. So Moses had to go back up the mountain again and get a new set of tablets And while he's up there, Moses has a moment with the Lord and he says, Lord, I sure would like to see your glory. And God says, no, Mo. I can't let you have that. See, you don't know what you're asking for. He said, well, here's what I will do for you, Moses. I'm going to hide you over here in this cave and I'm going to pass by and as the train of my robe passes before you, you'll get a fleeting glimpse of my glory. And the Bible says that when Moses came down the mountain that second time, he had been in the afterglow of God's glory. And the Bible says that the Israelites said, whoa, Moses, tone it down a little bit. You see, because he had been in the presence of God. And the glory cloud of God, I mean, I don't know what SPF he he was wearing, But the the glory of God was shining off His face just having been in the presence of God. That's the illustration that Paul uses here to help us to understand. Here's Paul's analogy. Just as Moses and his appearance was changed by the glory of God, so too we are gradually changed by the Spirit of God who refines us and transforms us from the inside out. So when we get alone with God, when we seek God's face, when we give Holy Spirit the permission to come into our lives and rearrange some stuff and change us, we all of a sudden begin to look differently, sound differently, walk differently, think differently, and now people can look at us and say, there's something different about Him. I don't know what it is about her, but they, they are changed. What is it? It's the Spirit of God. It's the sanctifying process. I love what Billy Graham told in one of his books. He said that he and his wife, Ruth, were driving through a long stretch of road construction. They had numerous slowdowns, detours, and stops along the way. And finally, they reached the end of all that difficulty and there was smooth pavement that stretched out before him. By the way, how many of you have deepened your prayer life driving I-26 lately? Is that project ever going to get done? Y'all just pray for them. Finally, they reached the end of all that difficulty and smooth pavement. And the sign on the side of the road caught Ruth's eye. Here's what it said. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. She turned to Billy and she said, I want those words on my tombstone. And sure enough, if you go down to Charlotte and you go to the Billy Graham Library, you could see her grave and etched there on that headstone, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. What an apt reminder, friend. He's still working on me to make me who I ought to be. It took Him just a day to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the moon, Jupiter and Mars. 
how patient and loving he must be. Praise God, he ain't done working on me. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of redemption. Thank God He don't give up on you and me. Thank God He don't cast us aside when we fall and sin and don't pray and don't walk after Him and our hearts messed up and our priorities get out of order. Thank God for a patient Holy Spirit who'll tap us on the shoulder and say, Hey, you're off the path. Hey, you ought to read your Bible. Hey, you ought to get up early and pray. Hey, you've been missing the mark. Praise God for the sanctifying sweetness of the Holy Spirit. When He kicks the bucket over in the service and you get a blessing from God and you say, Lord, I wasn't looking for it. Lord, I wasn't asking for it. But thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Spirit. You're changing me. My heart's not how it used to be. I love the things that God loves. My perspective's a little bit different now having walked with God thank you Holy Spirit for changing my loves and changing my life oh friend we see number five the Spirit ensures believers this one and I'm done the Spirit ensures believers I'm going Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 you'll see how these verses link together Romans or excuse me We'll go Ephesians first. Ephesians 1. In Him, verse 13, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed. We just sang about it. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Watch this. Not a maybe. Not an if. The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Then Romans 8, 15 and 16, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received, hallelujah, the spirit of adoption as sons who cry, what church? Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Alright, don't check out on me now. You ever doubted your salvation? Devil ever get on your back? And taunt you, and shame you, and lie to you. You ever backslid and got your life in such a tangled up mess you couldn't get yourself out anymore? The devil comes alongside of you and says, You ain't no child of God. Look the way you live. If them people down at the Baptist church knew about that, they would throw you out. God doesn't love you. Let me tell you, there's nothing more miserable than living in uncertainty. And the devil's an expert at it. That's one reason why the Father gave us the Holy Spirit as a reminder in our failures who we belong to. That we've been adopted. That we belong to God. And Paul uses two different metaphors to describe what's known as the assurance of the Holy Spirit. Notice this first one. Sealed, Ephesians 1. In the ancient world, listen to this, official correspondence from a king or dignitary was sealed with a wax ring and imprinted with a mark of authenticity. So if you received official mail from a king or from a dignitary, it would be sealed with the royal symbol. What the Bible is telling us here is that the sealing of the Holy Spirit is God signifying to you and me, this is mine. 
You are saved, sanctified, sealed, secure. It's better than guaranteed mail. And it says, if you have the Spirit of God within you, you will get to your destination. Paul uses another metaphor here. It's adoption. That was in Romans. In the ancient Roman culture, an adopted child would receive all the benefits and inheritance as a child born in the family. He says we've been adopted in. We have the Spirit of God that cries out within us, Abba, Father, and the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we belong to Him. Notice this. Adoption is different from natural birth. Because to be adopted meant that the child was freely chosen and desired by the parents. And when the Bible says that we've been adopted into the kingdom of God, God looked out, I want that one. I want her. I want him. Be in my family. Feel my spirit. Join my people. Notice this. Do you know that in Roman adoption, it was permanent and binding? That means that the parents could never disown the child they had adopted. Let me ask you something. If you have been born again by the Spirit of God, how can you be unborn again? Just a question. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is the guarantee that your destiny is in the hands of a loving Father. Listen. Listen, this is so important. God isn't holding an eraser over your name in the Lamb's book of life waiting for you to mess up so that He can say, uh-huh, I knew it. They would fail. Out of here. That's not the heart of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. He is not a cruel taskmaster who is looking for you to mess up so He can revoke your place in His family. But the assurance... And the full intention of the Holy Spirit within us is to give us that peace. Yes, I've failed. Yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've gone prodigal. Yes, I've lost my way. But God's Spirit still draws me back. He still forgives me. He still speaks to me. Praise God, He still convicts me. In 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge was completed. Cost $77 million. Who knows what it would cost today. The Golden Gate Bridge was built in two stages. The first slowly and the second rapidly. Listen to this. In the first stage, 23 men fell to their death and the work ground to a halt because fear paralyzed the workmen. Finally, an ingenious foreman thought, you know, there needs to be a safety net. So they put together for $100,000 the largest net ever built and hung it beneath the workmen. When phase two of the bridge began, ten were saved that fell into the net and the work proceeded 25% faster until the job was done. Why? Because the men had the assurance of their safety and they were free to wholeheartedly serve in the project. And such is the assurance and the power of the Holy Spirit when He works in your life and you know I am His and He is mine. He gives you assurance. And that frees you up from trying to work your salvation out in legalism and allows you to be more productive in achieving the work in God's kingdom. 
Do you have that assurance today? If not, you can. You can get it nailed down. You can repent of your sin. Young person, old person, somebody who's grown up their whole life in church, you can have that assurance today. You can know the Holy Spirit in all His fullness. You can know the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can know the acceptance and the pleasure of the Father. But you must repent. You must believe and come to Christ. And then you can be filled with the Holy Spirit.